Let's continue to worship the Lord this morning by looking into his word. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two, where we have this incredible story of the Magi that come to see the Lord Jesus and the star that led them there. And for this reason, I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, The Star and the Savior. Before we look at the text, I was fascinated again over the last several weeks to notice how many times the news people have had some astronomer come on television to explain the star. It's always a curiosity to me. And they talk about how they've researched records from ancient times and compare them with current planetary orbits and so on and so forth. And they ultimately say, we really don't know. It may have been this. It may have been that. And it's all pure conjecture, nothing conclusive. And of course, when you hear all of that, it would cause many to believe that, well, you know, the Bible, you know, you can't really believe that stuff. Well, such is the sport of fools. But today we are going to turn to the Word of God and let the Bible interpret itself. Because I think the Bible gives us much evidence as to what this star really was. And my prayer this morning is that you will not only understand the profound meaning of the star, but also let it shine once again upon the Savior that it symbolized. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who, was been, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, we come to this text that has so many riches in it, 
And yet I will not do what I have done before and do a verse by verse exposition. If you want that, you can look back in some of the archives of other sermons where I've gone into great detail. But this morning, I want to give you kind of a bigger picture of what this text is saying. And in order to do so, it's going to require a bit of context. For some of you, this may be old hat. For others, it will undoubtedly be new. This is an amazing historical account. First of all, let me bring you up to speed as to what has happened just prior to what we've read. There were two very godly teenagers who have made a grueling 70-mile journey to Bethlehem for a mandatory census for the purpose of taxation. Imagine ladies riding on a donkey for some 70 miles being nine months pregnant. Of course, I'm referring to Joseph and Mary. And they came to Bethlehem. There was no place for them to stay, so they found some lodging in a shelter, a filthy, smelly stable, and there Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, months later, Joseph and Mary are in a house. For whatever reason, they decided to stay in this area, probably to avoid having to do a lot of explanation when they got back home to Nazareth. And Magi in the east see this star and they follow it to Bethlehem. Now, it's crucial for you to understand a bit about this word star. In the original language, it is the word austere. And it can be translated a star, but it basically refers to something that blazes, a shining forth as a star would do, as we would see in the heavens. And so I want you to be careful not to confine your understanding of the star to that which we're familiar with, which would be something that is shining forth way up in the sky millions of miles away. But imagine an intense glowing, an intense blazing, a radiant shining light. Obviously, This could not have been an actual star, as we would think of a star, in the sky, millions of miles away. And I would say that for four reasons. First of all, no normal star could possibly lead anyone from point A to point B. Secondly, no normal star could appear, then disappear, then suddenly appear again, as was the case here in Matthew 2. And thirdly, no normal star could be visible to some, but not to all. And finally, no normal star could appear and move towards a particular house and hover over that specific place where the child was. It's a bit on the star. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on the Magi. Frankly, we know very little specifics about these, quote, wise men of Scripture. But we can piece together some fascinating details as we look at the Bible, certainly as we look at Daniel, where the Magi are discussed, and I'll give you more of that in a moment, as well as looking at some of the ancient 
historians like Herodotus and so forth. But notice here in verse two, it uses the term wise men. Where is he who has born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Actually, in verse one, behold, magi from the east and they're the ones that came. Now, this magi can be translated wise men. The magi really is an untranslatable word, but it came um, from the ancient days, and it actually referred to a tribe of people. And it's best translated magi because they were the priestly line of people from among the ancient Medes. They were considered to be descendants from a tribe of people associated with the ancient Medes, and they were actually the priestly line of the Medes, just like you would have the tribe of the Levites, that it would have been the priestly line of the Jews. So, too, you have the Magi, the priestly line of the ancient Medes. Now, these men were very skilled in astronomy, the science, as well as in astrology, which is the occultic superstitious practice, a practice that is condemned by God. And they were basically occultists. They were skilled in divination and sorcery. And the term magi over the years, the, the, the word magi was corrupted throughout history and it's now translated many times as magic or magician, which is a term that is synonymous with sorcerer. Now, these magi rose to power in ancient days through cultic astrological abilities that they had through their sorcery, through their divination, through their astronomy and so forth. And they become they became advisors of the royalty of the East, and thus they were called wise men. In fact, the wisdom of the Magi was called the law of the Medes and the Persians. We read about that in the Old Testament, for example, in, in uh, Esther chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 6. We also read how they were specialists in dream interpretation. We also know that they were official advisors to the king from various passages in Scripture, for example, in Jeremiah 39, verses 3 and 13, we come across the name Nergal Sarezer, and he was the Rab Mag, or the chief magi in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you will recall your Old Testament history, you will remember that once upon a time there was a 15-year-old boy that had dealings with the magi, and his name was Daniel. You will recall that Daniel was kidnapped from the royal family in Judah, along with three of his friends, and they were all deported to Babylon to be brainwashed into Babylonian culture and also to assist the Babylonians with all of the new Jewish prisoners that were coming in exile. And if we go to, for example, Daniel chapter 2, we'll, we read how that Daniel rose um, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar as a statesman, we read about the Chaldeans in that passage, which was very likely another name for, another name for Magi. And we read about these magicians and how that they could not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember, remember that story? But Daniel did interpret the dream and Nebuchadnezzar made him master over the Magi. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was going to have all of the Magi killed. But in Daniel 2.24, we read 
that Daniel pleaded, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Now, undoubtedly, Daniel taught these magi who were now followers of Daniel because he helped save their life. And he was head over all of them. No doubt he taught them about Jehovah God, the true God of Israel and the coming Messiah. I believe that he would have taught them about Old Testament prophecy, along with hearing many things from the other saints from the dispersion of that day. Because how else could the Magi have known to say in verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. How in the world would they have known to somehow put that together? Undoubtedly, Daniel told them of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24:17, where we read that a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. A star in Hebrew, a koshav, which again is a blazing forth, something like lightning. It's going to come from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. And there we read of a coming king, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ that was prophesied, the Messiah who was coming in light. No doubt Daniel told the Magi of that day of the prophecy in Second Samuel 23, 4, where we read, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds. I believe that the inspired prophet of God would have rehearsed the stories of the glory of the presence of the Lord throughout the history of Israel. Undoubtedly, he taught them about the tabernacle. And then, of course, later the temple that were tangible, visual symbols of the presence of God. You will recall that even the word tabernacle was a term in the original language, mishkan, that comes from a word shakan, which means to abide or to dwell or to rest. And from that came the word shekinah, which was this brilliant light that hovered, that abided, that, that dwelt between the, cover, the, the cherubim over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. This dazzling light, dear friends, was the effulgence of the glory of God, revealing the presence of God. Certainly, Daniel would have told them of such a glorious thing. And now in Matthew 2, some 600 years later, the descendants of these ancient magi see what Daniel and the prophets foretold. I believe that they see the sign of the incarnate Christ, who was the Shekinah, who was the light of the world, the true tabernacle that came to dwell amongst men, to dwell amongst us so that we could have an intimate, personal, relational understanding of the lover of our souls, and ultimately the one who would come and to live a perfect life and die on behalf of the elect. Would not Daniel have spoken of this glorious, mysterious light of the Shekinah? Would not he have told them about how that God, whenever he would materialize himself, would do so in resplendent light? The Koshav that Balaam spoke of. 
some 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. A prophecy, by the way, that would have been about 1400 years before Christ. Dear friends, I believe that the star that's spoken of here in Matthew 2 was nothing more than the effulgence of the glory of God, the Shekinah of the living God. You know, light is a fitting metaphor to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's a metaphor that is that is steeped in many Old Testament illusions. You will recall that it was a glorious light that appeared to Moses in the midst of the burning bush in Exodus three. And in Exodus 13, we read of the light of his presence, which was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that led the covenant people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. It was that light that stood in the entrance of the tent of meeting when Moses entered it in Exodus 33. And again, at Sinai, at the giving of the law in Exodus 23, you will recall that Moses prayed, Oh God, show me your glory. And God said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And yet what he decided to do is hide Moses in the cleft of a rock and cover him with his hand and let his glory pass over him, the light of his glory. And you will recall that Moses was allowed to see somewhat the backside of God. And even with that, the glory radiated off of Moses as he came down off the mount. Beloved, I believe it was this glorious Shekinah, the presence of the living Christ, the same glory that hovered above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. I believe it was that same light that led the wise men, to the place of Christ. It's important for you to remember that, again, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, and later on in the temple, you had the Holy of Holies, and in there you had this, this Ark. And in the Ark, there was the, the law, the tablets of stone that had been offended by man. And separating that ark from the presence of God that hovered between the cherubim over the ark was this mercy seat. And there's no way that mankind could in any way pass from the offended law into the presence of God apart from the shedding of blood. And of course, all of this symbolized the coming Christ. And it was His glory His Shekinah that hovered between the cherubim. And so I believe that it is fitting that this was the same light that led the Magi to the side of the Savior. No doubt Daniel spoke of the glory of God's promised light that we read about earlier this morning in which Isaiah prophesied some 150 years prior to Daniel's day. It's a fascinating prophecy. In Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, we read, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were on the northeast border of Israel in the Galilee, uh, a region now bordering uh, Lebanon and the Golan Heights, bordering Syria and so forth. And they were the first to fall under the weight of the Assyrian invaders. 
And although there was gloom and anguish in those days, a brighter day of glory was here promised. And that's why it says, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And of course, this is a reference to the region where the Messiah, where King Jesus would be born. You say, well, how do you know all of that? Well, the Bible interprets itself in Matthew chapter four, and verse 13. We read of Jesus leaving Nazareth. It says that he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. I believe Daniel would have gone on to remind the Magi of his day of what Isaiah continued to say in verse two. He said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And so the Magi, I believe, would have anticipated this down through the years, anticipating this glorious light that was promised, that symbolized the Lord Jesus Christ. They wouldn't have known that, but they knew that it would symbolize the presence of God, the Messiah that would come. And later also in Isaiah 9, Daniel would have spoken to them about verse 6, where we read that the Lord revealed to Isaiah even more about the light to come. It says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So, when the austere appeared to the Magi in the east, they knew immediately what it meant and where to go. Now, a little more background. In the first century, the Magi were so powerful that no Persian could ever ascend to the throne apart from two conditions. Number one, they had to master the scientific and religious practice and disciplines of the Magi, things like astronomy and math and agriculture and architecture, natural history and so forth. But secondly, they had to be approved and even crowned by the Magi. In fact, all of the judicial offices of that day were controlled by the Magi, all of the kingly offices were controlled by them and the royal bench of judges that they chose. Bottom line, what you've got to understand is that the Magi were the kingmakers of that day. And 600 years before King Jesus was born, our sovereign God was setting the stage for all of this through his servant Daniel and no doubt many others. Now, in Matthew 2, context. During this time, Rome was terrified of the Eastern Empire, a mysterious and barbaric people across the Mediterranean Sea. There was this vast Arabian desert, and across that desert loomed the very vicious barbarian horde of the Parthian Empire, Empire the land of the Medes and Persians and Babylon. 
And by the way, it is still a very barbaric place. We know it as Iran today. They were violent enemies, Rome and this great eastern empire. In fact, they fought in 63 B.C., 55 B.C., and 40 B.C. And where did they always fight? You guessed it, in the land of Palestine, along the coast of the Mediterranean, in Syria, in Jordan, in Palestine. So basically, what you've got to understand here is that Israel was a no man's land between two great powers. And whenever they clashed, that's where they would fight. Now, the Romans despised and greatly feared the Magi, these sorcerers, these astrologers. In fact, Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria of Rome, said they are vipers, they are scorpions, and they are venomous creatures. Now, the plot thickens. Bear with me. At the time of Christ's birth, there was a ruling body in the eastern Parthian Persian Empire called the Magistani. And it was completely, totally composed of magi. Their duty was basically to make kings. And their king, Phraates IV, was a big time loser. In fact, he was a total disgrace. He had been deposed. And so they were looking for a new king. A new king for the Eastern Empire. One that would lead them to ultimately conquer Rome. Rome knew this. Guess who else knew it? Herod. Isn't it fascinating to see God's providence working out all of these things in order to accomplish his plan? Now, with all of this context, imagine the scene here before us that Matthew describes. You've got an insanely jealous puppet king named Herod, and all of the people despise Herod. Even Rome is a bit skeptical of this character. And suddenly he discovers the Persian kingmakers have arrived in Jerusalem. Not on camels, but some historians recount that it was on Persian steeds, not with just three characters on some camels, as some silly traditions would have us believe. That's certainly the theology of Christmas cards, and you want to be very, very careful with that, dear friends. But some have indicated that it may have been as many as a thousand troops that accompanied them into Jerusalem. Certainly, as I think about it, such nobility would have never traveled so many, many, many miles across the desert without a large entourage of soldiers to protect them and servants to serve them. It would have required a, a vast train of camels to supply them even with their needs, pack animals, wranglers, and so forth. And imagine now these, these, these magi with their flowing robes and all of the pomp and ceremony, they come riding into Jerusalem, asking in verse 2, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. In other words, we saw this blazing forth in the east, and we have come to worship him. And what else is fascinating to note is that falling stars and comets and so on always indicated to those superstitious people 
that there was a king that needed to be deposed. So you can imagine where Herod's mind was going. So kings lived in constant fear of these types of things. And all of this adds, I believe, to, frankly, the humor of the passage. It's an understatement where it says in verse 2, And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. In fact, the word trouble means terrified to the point of panic. He was terror-stricken. He was extremely agitated. And... To make it even more hysterical, I think, is the fact that during this time, the majority of Herod's soldiers, his troops, were out of town on a mission, leaving them very vulnerable. Now, friends, that's the comfort that we have when we look at a text like this and we see that a sovereign God had orchestrated all of these things to accomplish his purposes. Now, while indeed this is a bit humorous, at least it is to me when I think of Herod and what was going on, I have to also come back and ask the question, I wonder why God used the star. You know, he could have used many other means to attract the Magi. Why did he use the star? And this is where I want to lead you here this morning for a few minutes as we think of these incredible Truths, And I want to suggest to you three reasons why he used the star. Number one, he used it to attest to his glory. Notice again, the Magi arrive in Jerusalem saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, friends, remember, all through Scripture we read that the triune God describes Himself in glory and it describes his presence as being that of resplendent, brilliant, ineffable, dazzling light. God is spirit and whenever he would materialize himself, he would do so in this glorious light. In Daniel chapter 2 verse 22, we read that he emanates light without shadow saying light dwells with him. And in Psalm 104 verse 2, we read that he covers himself with light as with a garment. And Paul describes Christ Jesus to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16 as dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and everlasting power. And in 1 John 1.5, we read that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And you will recall that passage in James chapter 1 verse 17 He is called the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, God does not change like the celestial bodies that we see in the sky that would vary in intensity and in shadow due to rotation. Beloved, imagine a world without light. Obviously, we can't do that because we would not exist were it not for light. Nothing could exist. And likewise, nothing could exist without God, therefore, because he is light. You know, light still baffles physicists. It's interesting. Physicists tell us that the human eye cannot even see light. 
that light is completely invisible. All we are able to see is light rays interacting with tiny particles of matter in the air that reflect it. And all of the colors that we see in light depend upon varying wavelengths of the spectrum of light that exists. In fact, visible light, they tell us, occupies one one thousandth of a percent of the light spectrum. And yet in this little teeny minute portion of that light spectrum, we're able to see all of the glorious colors in our world. The energy spectrum of light, they tell us, goes, if you were to look at it from left to right, it goes from radio waves to microwaves to infrared. And then you have visible light right in the middle. And then it moves on to ultraviolet, x-ray and gamma rays. And we can't see any of that except that little one one thousandth of a percent right in the middle of that spectrum. And yet, isn't it staggering? The beauty of all that we see in that one little minute portion. If the light spectrum were one mile, one one thousandth of a percent would be an exceedingly small unit of measure. Something much less than even an inch. And I like to think of it this way, that God has allowed us to see so much, yet it is within such a minuscule range of light. Trillions of shades of colors. And likewise, think of this. God has only revealed a minuscule portion of his glory, the light of his presence through creation and through the word. What will it be like, dear friends, when someday we look upon him and we see him in all of his glory? When we look upon the God of the universe face to face. The Apostle Paul gives us a hint of what it will be like in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 10. He says, when the perfect comes, which is a reference to um, our glorified state and the eternal state of heaven. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And he goes on to say, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And think of it, even in this life, with the Word of God and with the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, we can only see in a mirror dimly, so to speak. Our human, in our human state, we are only able to see just, just a little glimpse of the character and the glory of God and understand all that He is up to. But when we enter into the presence of the living God and we see Him face to face, and we are enveloped with the resplendent glory of his light, then we will see that which we cannot now imagine. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. As Paul said, now we can only know in part, but then we shall know fully just as we have been fully known. In other words, when we are glorified, we will be illumined by the glory of God himself. So God used this glorious light, I believe, to attest to his glory. That's what we've seen all through Scripture. Now, back to the Magi coming to Jerusalem. Remember that Israel, because of their idolatry and apostasy, had not seen the presence and the glory of God for over 400 years. 
the glory of God, Ichabod, it had departed. We read about that in Ezekiel. It had departed from Jerusalem because of their wickedness. Then after 400 years, it once again appeared to a humble group of shepherds in Bethlehem. And you will remember in Luke 2, we read, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and, catch it, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened, and the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. And he went on to describe how that Christ Jesus, the Savior, is born. Now, months later... From that particular event, this austere appears again to the Persian kingmakers, a blazing light. And for some reason, they knew exactly what it meant and where to go. How on earth could that have happened? Well, hopefully you have some idea. We read in John 1 how that John the Baptist was the one who was sent to bear witness of the light in verse 7. And in verse 9, it said, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And now think of it, dear friends. Now the Shekinah is contained in a child, in Emmanuel, God with us, in Jesus Christ. That's why later in John 1.14, we read, and the word referring to Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Dear Christian, think of the staggering significance of this. Remember, even in Matthew 17, we read how that the radiance of his glory shone forth from the Lord Jesus like the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when Paul recounted his conversion in Acts 26, verse 13, He said, at midday along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And now we see the glory of God in the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 2, we read that God in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance, which is the brightness of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Is it any wonder, dear friends, that Jesus would have said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness. What a wonderful truth that is. Dear friends, I hope that your hearts have been illumined by the truth of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope that that light has transformed you by his grace and that you are walking in it. In Psalm 27, 1, we read that the Lord is my light. And my salvation, whom shall I fear? And so now, because of Christ, believers can rejoice. Think of it. Though we were once blind, though we were once walking in the darkness of sin, by God's infinite grace, we were able to see the light of the gospel of Christ. And now, as we read in Colossians 1.12, 
We can give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. What a magnificent truth. Think of it. Though the glory of Christ was obscured in a stable, though that glory was was obscured by being housed in the body of a human child, nevertheless, the heavens as well as the heavenly hosts could not contain His glory. And we see this resplendent light of His glory appearing here and there in the story of the incarnate Christ. And again, for this reason, the Magi said, we saw His star, His blazing forth, His shining. So first of all, I believe that God used the star to attest to His glory. But secondly, I believe He used it to enlighten the elect. Notice again, it says, we have seen His star. I find it interesting that not everyone could see this magnificent shining. Some could, some couldn't. Notice in verse 3, and when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. In other words, what, what, what star? What's shining? What, what are you talking about? And notice he goes on to say in verse 4, And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I mean, here the religious leaders even knew the prophecy. And they still couldn't see it. Not only could they not see the light of His glory, but they couldn't even see the need to go find Him and to worship Him. What an amazing thought. And then in verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Finomai, it's a, it's a term uh, appeared here. It means to shine forth, uh, to, to flash, to blaze forth like lightning. That's what he's saying. When, when did this thing blaze forth like lightning? Where, where did you see this? That's the idea. It's like he's saying, you know, none of us have seen this mysterious light. Well, why? Why could he not see it? Why could the others not see it? Well, because of their unbelief, because of their wickedness, because of their pride, their apostasy. God had judicially blinded them, not to mention Satan had blinded their eyes to the truth. We read of this, for example, in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, a reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might... May, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And all you have to do is look around the world even today and people can't see it. They can't see it. It's as plain. I mean, we see it everywhere. They can't see it at all. And only the illuminating power of the Spirit of God can penetrate such spiritual darkness and cause a person to begin to see the truth of who they are. And the truth of the Savior. But God will only reveal Himself, dear friends, to those whom He chooses. 
Let me give you an example of this. You remember in Exodus 13, there's that reference of the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that was associated, we know, with, with God's presence, the angel of God's presence, as we read in Isaiah 63, 9. And again, this same thing was described in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. There, the angel of the Lord came and literally the messenger of Yahweh, which was, in fact, the Lord himself talking to Moses. So this, this amazing pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night was the presence of God, this glorious light that led the Israelites in the wilderness as they exited from Egypt. And you'll recall in Exodus 14, after they had departed from Egypt, you will remember that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and caused him to change his mind and decide that he's going to go chase after them once again. And the reason God did that is in verse 4 of Exodus 14. He says, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. In other words, I am going to judge them. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to call for his troops to go and to bring them back. I am going to destroy them, and I am going to be glorified in my wrath and in my judgment. Which, by the way, is a theme that we see all through Scripture. And so he sent an elite force of Egyptian charioteers to pursue the Israelites. And the Israelites saw that they were coming upon them. They were encamped there by the sea. They had not crossed it as yet. But the story goes on and we read how that God protected them with the glory of his presence. And in verse 19 of Exodus 14, we read something very fascinating. And here it is. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Isn't that amazing? What was light to one was darkness to the other. And of course, you will remember the story the next day what happened. The seas were parted. The Israelites went across. And Pharaoh's charioteers were defeated and drowned. Beloved, what an amazing illustration of God's sovereignty even in salvation. Think of this. What is light to some is darkness to others. And in similar fashion, when Christ was born, God revealed the glory of his Shekinah to some, but not to all. Herod couldn't see it. The scribes, the priests, they couldn't see it. The many thousands of people in Jerusalem, they couldn't see it. Paul reminds us of this truth, and we see it all through Scripture in Romans 9:18 we read that he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires and certainly God judicially hardened the hearts of those Israelites at that time due to their stubborn and proud unbelief in fact that hardening continues to to this day it's a temporary thing we read about that later on in Romans 11:8 where Paul quotes the Old Testament 
There it says, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then later he says, quoting David, let their eyes be darkened to see not. But isn't it wonderful that many did see the light, the glory of Christ, not just the star, but the Messiah that it symbolized. And for all of us who have been transformed by the Spirit of God, by the light of the gospel, all of us who have been illumined by the truth so that we could see the wretchedness of our sin and the glorious salvation in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us would still be walking in darkness were it not for the grace of God. And so like the Magi, we can now say, we have seen his star. Not because our eyes spiritually or physically are better than anyone else, but because of God's grace. Why this mysterious light? To attest to his glory. Secondly, to enlighten the elect. And finally, to signal his return. You know what? There are those that will see this light again someday on earth. And certainly those of us in heaven will see it. The Lord Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. What's the sign of the Son of Man? It's the Shekinah, the glorious light of his presence that hovered between the cherubim. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Beloved, when he comes again, no one will miss it. He will reveal his glory to everyone. But sadly, for most, it will be too late. I want you to think of it this way. Though he came the first time in obscurity, he will return again visible to all the world. He's going to turn out all of the lights of the universe so that the only light you will see will be the sign of the Son of Man. Though he came first in humility, dear friends, he is coming again in glory. Though he came the first time as an infant child, he is going to come again as the Lord of hosts. Though he came the first time and he was laid in a manger and later hung on a cross, he is going to come the second time and he will sit on a throne and he will rule with a rod of iron. Though he came the first time as a servant, he will come the second time as king of kings. He came the first time as a lamb. He will come again as a lion. He came the first time and he opened not his mouth. But when he returns again, the Bible tells us that from his mouth will come a sharp sword to smite the nations. He came first to seek and to save the lost. But when he comes again, he'll not come as a savior, but as a judge. I beg you to examine your heart. I beg you to assess the safety of your soul. 
Because today, dear friends, you have heard of the light of the gospel. But now, will you not beg God to let you see it? Will you not do as the wise men did of old and come to the Savior at all cost, rejoicing in the light, and fall down and worship Him as the Lord of glory? Dear Christian, especially during this Christmas season, this is a time when we can come together and we can rejoice in the light. Oh, we don't see the star. We, we get little glimpses of it when we see the pretty lights that we put up, and certainly we get a big glimpse when we see the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth. But dear friends, we now see the glory of Christ in His Word and in His body, the church. For it's now His glory, His glory is housed in us as well. In those of us who have the hope of glory. And may I remind you that we can rejoice now during this season of the year that someday we're going to see the full panoply of all of His glory. Can you imagine that? To see the full light spectrum? Whatever that means? Whatever that's going to be like? Well, that's all we can do is imagine. In fact, it's interesting, and I close with this thought. On the Isle of Patmos, John was given a great vision of things to come. And he described that capital city of heaven, that city of the new Jerusalem this way in Revelation 21:23, He said, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. What an amazing, amazing truth. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we rejoice in these truths. And although we will perhaps never know fully all of the mysteries associated with the star and what happened with the Magi, yet you have given us enough information in the Word to come up with a tenable hypothesis as to what happened But, Lord, that's not the important thing. We know the important thing is to know that you came in glory, even though your glory was obscured in your humiliation. But we also know that someday your glory will fill the earth. It will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray all of this in your precious name and for your glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.